0: Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome George Stevens Jr. George has been, I'm going to go through the list quickly. He's been nominated for an Emmy 38 times and has won 14 Emmys. He has won eight awards from the Writers Guild of America. He was awarded an honorary Oscar for his lifelong contributions to the film industry in 2012. George, thank you so much for joining me.
1: So happy to be with you, Kirk.
0: So you've written a book called My Place in the Sun, which is a memoir, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Usually, I'll talk to an author about their career and then their latest book. But for you, your latest book is your career and your life, and it's a summation of all your years in Hollywood. And I guess it starts that you were born the son of one of Hollywood's great
1: directors, George Stevens. That is true. And the subtitle of the book is Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. And I speak to you today from Washington, D.C.,
0: It's interesting, as as I read through your book, you've got a lot of photos, and memoirs don't always have a lot of photos like that. And here's photos of you hobnobbing with Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean and Rock Hudson, and then with Jackie Kennedy and presidents and all that, you're kind of like a zelig here all throughout the film industry. But it also made me think that you're the person behind the curtain that most people don't see
1: who's involved with the film industry so much. And actually, Steven Spielberg, when he, he read my book, he says, you're like zelig. So you and Steven are the only two who've said that.
0: Oh, okay. So that's the two levels of connection with Steven Spielberg. That's made my day. Yes. So we talk about the golden age of Hollywood. And was it really that golden? Because the studio system was really complicated. And it was like a merchandising steamroller to keep producing movies with the great actors. And yet so many great movies came out of it.
1: And I grew up in a house with a person who happened to be a rare combination of a wonderful father, a great director. A, I, would, I could say a war hero. He spent three years away and uh, and was on the ground in, in Europe in World War Two in a D-Day. So I had a special look at it. And I think that my father uh, had a kind of the quality of his work, uh, the integrity uh, that I was sort of shaped by something different than that he wanted to make successful pictures. But I think the most important thing I learned from him was when he told me you have to respect the audience. That guided my career.
0: Well, so you named the memoir, My Place in the Sun, which is a riff on the title of the movie, A Place in the Sun, which is based on the Theodore Dreiser novel, An American Tragedy. Wonderful novel. There was a wonderful little tidbit that I found about your father on Wikipedia, assuming this is true. In 1965, he threatened to sue for $1 million any TV station that inserted any commercial into the running of his film without his specific approval of the ad. And I was thinking, yes, I like that. That's respecting the audience. Absolutely.
1: And it was it it was so it was such a bold thing to do. He was quite confident he wasn't going to win, but he did get considerable respect from the judge and his contract provided that Paramount Pictures could not alter or change in any way the final cut of his film. A Place in the Sun, which was so highly regarded. He won the Oscar. And then he started seeing it on television, as he referred, that they cut into it little playlets, <laughs> meaning that Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor are at that, that cl- an important moment in the film on the beach. And, and the and going in a motorboat and then comes a commercial and it's got a beach and water and a whole other story begins and no judge was going to upend entirely the whole system of commercial television but he did get con- considerable respect in the decision
0: well, i'll be very honest with you i cannot watch films with commercials I don't watch films on commercial TV. I'll watch them on the streaming services or I'll rent them or I'll buy them. Because as you're saying, here's Montgomery Cliff on the beach with Elizabeth Taylor. And then there's
1: a laxative commercial. I mean, uh, it just ruins the story. Absolutely. And, 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 and five commercials in a row taking you yeah. totally out of it for a couple, yeah. a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Just I want to tell you what happened last Sunday night, because here we are. You're talking about a book that really deals with the past, although much of the attitude and uh, substance of it speaks to the future. But on Sunday night at the motion picture, the new motion picture museum in Hollywood, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, we had a screening. It was part of what is called the George Stevens Lecture. And in this new 950 seat theater, a full house with a waiting list to see. Actually, I introduced Christopher Nolan, arguably the most interesting director, American director of our time. Um, And Christopher Nolan did the George Stevens Lecture in which he talked about my father's film, from 1953, Shane, on its 70th anniversary. And then the film unspooled on this huge 33-foot-high screen. And it was like seeing Shane uh, the day it was released on this beautiful screen. And it is how um, I speak to it because it is how uh, films remain current. And the past is the future. And uh, and I enjoy that. And it was just such a a, a remarkable response to the film, mostly young people, a paying audience who hadn't seen it. Maybe some had seen it on television, but to see it on spool on the big screen uh, the way it did 70 years ago was really exciting.
0: It's a huge difference. I remember when I was a teenager seeing films like 2001 or Lawrence of Arabia on big screens, and even seeing Fantasia when it was re-released in 77, I think, in New York. Big, huge screen. And anymore, it's just not the same. I mean, I'll confess I have a very large t v at home because I like that immersive thing, but the big screen is just something even even when I was very young going to hammer horror films on Saturday mornings. It's the size of the screen that makes everything so spectacular
1: and you're in the dark with other people, yep, my father used to talk about filling your appetite of vision he liked it. he always liked to sit down halfway. In the theater, then we'd go to sneak previews and the moguls would be in the back with their cigars and dad and I would be down, you know, kind of halfway surrounded by people so we could feel how they were responding to this unfinished film.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned your father during the war, and he shot some color footage of D-Day, the liberation of Paris, and the concentration camps. I remember when this was first discovered in what was it, the late nineteen eighties? You made a documentary about this. How did you discover this footage? It
1: was what, just sitting in some vault, someplace? Yeah, Dad had a storage room in North Hollywood, in California, to uh, got a big room, and it had. Everything it had file cabinets. It had his Laurel and Hardy scripts. It had souvenirs from World War II. Everything. Uh, and while when I was kind of thirteen years old, boxes used to arrive from Europe, coat of color, yellow boxes, and that was what was called reversal film, and it was what home movies were made of. And you you put a cassette in a sixteen millimeter camera, shoot it send it off to Kodak, it had come back. The same piece of film would now be a positive that you could project and run. Dad, they were shooting 35 millimeter black and white for the newsreels to report on the war, but he had a 16 millimeter camera and they passed it around shooting this color. And it just went into storage. And we knew it was there, but somehow you couldn't feel the significance of it. Dad was home moving on with his life. But after he died... I got into it, and I uh, eventually gave it to the Library of Congress, and now people can use it, uh, producers in any film. To, to, but it's the most remarkable color footage because that was a black and white war. It was. It, it was. When you think about it,
0: all the great photos, like Robert Capa's photos, are all in black and white, and you miss. You, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in photography and black and white photography, but. It looks old. It looks like Matthew Brady's photos from the Civil War, and the color makes it more real. My father was at D-Day, and when I first saw that footage, it brought back, it, it made it seem a lot more real.
1: I did a quick story. This time we're talking about when I discovered that footage, and um, I was living in Washington, and the storeroom is in Los Angeles, and I took one little reel of that film, and back to Washington with me, and I was running the American Film Institute and I had a screening room and I asked the projectionist on a warm Sunday, uh, Friday afternoon. To, and I sat down by myself and on the screen came footage with barrage balloons in the sky on a gray morning. And I'm looking at this footage and I realize it's D-Day. I further realize that my eyes are the first ones that weren't there on the day to see color. And then around a bulkhead comes a man in his late thirties in a helmet and it's my father. Um, and he would pass. That must've given you a chill. Oh my God. You know, and you had the same reaction, a father at D-Day and you see that footage. It's extraordinary, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So in 1962, you started working as director of the motion picture and television service. And this was when I guess you became a public servant at this point, didn't you?
1: I did. And it was a, it, it, it a life changing. I had just finished. I was had been in Hollywood in my late 20s, directing Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn and working with my father as associate producer and the director of the location scenes in Amsterdam for The Diary of Anne Frank, Edward R. Murrow came into my life, the great correspondent and broadcaster on CBS, and he had accepted a position to run the United States Information Agency, uh, no longer exists, which would tell America's story abroad with the Voice of America and with press and movies. And he asked me at age 29 to come and run the motion picture and later the television part of USIA. And it was a real change of life. I became a bi-coastal, different kind of person.
0: And at 29, but you already had all that experience of working with your father and being with all these stars. What was it like hanging out with Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson and James Dean? Well,
1: it's, you know, it was just my life. (laughs) It didn't seem, yeah, of course it was interesting, but, uh, uh, you know, I kind of just took it in stride. Um, because, uh, I, before that I'd, uh, worked on Shane with, with that and, and giant. Yeah. And then where I met Elizabeth and I, no, I met Elizabeth on a place in the sun and J- Jimmy Dean on uh, giant and rock. Yeah. The,
0: the thing is when you're working with those people, they're really normal people, aren't they? They're not stars anymore.
1: Yeah. They're your friends. Um, I mean, the best of them you know some are more loose, more different or neurotic but uh for the most part they're just the people you're you're doing your work with
0: yeah and how long did it take to shoot a film back then
1: oh gosh a giant it started shooting in um april and finished in september
0: so a long time because these days they they do things a lot more quickly don't they yeah. And was it because just the technology was different or that they just had a slower approach and they wanted to film differently?
1: Joseph Bankowitz, another director who who'd worked with my father as a producer of Woman of the Year, he said, George shoots all of this film and then he makes the film in the editing room. Yeah. Uh, I know the new
0: Napoleon film by Ridley Scott apparently was shot very quickly because he used like 10 or 15 cameras at a time for the battle scenes. Yeah. And that's something most directors don't do, isn't it?
1: Yes, that, that's unusual.
0: Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your amazing life. And we're going to talk a little bit about how you use Scrivener. Great. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing, and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So if I remember correctly, in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson decided to create the American Film Institute and asked you to be the the head of this institute. The role of the American Film Institute was kind of like a way of cultivating directors and filmmakers and bringing film more into an art form, wasn't it?
1: Yes, to, to recognize it as an art form which it is totally recognized today, but not then, and our cornerstone, more than half of the films that had been made since the beginning of film at the beginning of the 20th century were lost or missing or destroyed. And AFI's first task was to organize the rescue and preservation of American film. And we did that in collaboration with the Library of Congress, the Museum of Modern Art and George Eastman House and other institutions. But it was our it was the rock upon which we built the AFI. And the other was the Center for Advanced Film Studies, now known as the AFI Conservatory, that we started in 1969, And with 14 fellows at that time, all male, although today the women outnumber the men at the AFI Conservatory. But among that group of 14 was Terrence Malick, David Lynch, Paul Schrader, Caleb Deschanel, writer named Tom Rickman. It was just, you know, it was the beginning of something. And it was uh, a real challenge to have it survive, but it's it's past its fifty year 50th birthday and it's thriving. And with Patty Jenkins and so many of the popular filmmakers of today are AFI graduates. So that's what they call in
0: business sometimes an incubator. Yes. Where they, they help Companies who are startups and give them the not not necessarily the finances that they need, but the motivation
1: and the assistance and the mentorship and all that. Right, and 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 because we were in Hollywood, um, I I did an earlier book called uh, "Conversations with the Great Filmmakers of Hollywood's Golden Age." Uh, Some people refer to it as their Bible because it starts with Harold Lloyd and William Wyler and Billy Wilder and Fritz Lang and Fellini it was just from the seminars at AFI and uh, and that was part of uh, AFI's role that you that, that you refer to
0: You talked about restoring old films, and it is a shame that so many films get lost. Of course, the celluloid is not very stable, and so there's a lot of work. What I've been noticing recently, so I really got into film in my 70s. I'm 64 now, so when I was a teenager, I got into films. What I've been noticing recently is I'm seeing a lot of films that I saw back then that are being restored. So, for example, I'm a big fan of Vim Vendors, and a lot of his films have been restored. And they're not even that old. I guess they are. I guess some of them are 50 years old, but it doesn't feel like it. How much of a worry is this to lose the history of cinema?
1: Well, I think it's much less a worry than it was 50 years ago or more when we started AFI, because there was the Museum of Modern Art started very early on this, but it was just one organization in New York. um, And the Library of Congress was not doing it. And AFI kind of incubated the library to take a greater role. And we would find the films and they would do have the staff and, and, and we even helped fund their staff to do the preservation work. Um, so but, and today, you know, with Christopher Nolan, he and I had a half hour discussion yesterday discussing Shane and just how it looked. He saw both the 35 millimeter print. And then on Sunday night, we ran the uh restoration, uh, digital version. And we talk with real nuance about how you preserve as closely as possible the look that my father, the film that he saw and created. How do you maintain that? Because once you have all those tools, you can make it too bright. You can make it too dark. Uh, So but everybody, people are working on it now. It's attended to, I would say.
0: Yeah, because the particularities of a given film stock were important to the way a film looked.
1: Yes, yes, and we were discussing that, and and Christopher was saying that, you know, he, did, he, he does his films in seventy millimeter film, but eventually many of the showings are on digital, and he was even saying to me that he finds magic time that twilight that's so effective in many films uh, that it's instead of being dusky blue, when it goes to digital, it becomes bright blue, you know? So even for somebody with such command as he has and knowledge, you have to work so hard to make it look the way you, when you respect the audience, you want them to see it the way you envision it. So let's talk about how you use Scrivener. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, I think I started on it maybe 12 years ago. I mean, and I'd been keeping notes and I kept files. and, uh, But when I started to write it, I was kind of kept things over here into my computer and paper and all. And somebody told me about Scrivener. And I got it and I have it sitting here on my other computer that I'm not looking at you at. Um, and I look back on it and I just kept putting everything into Scrivener and in, dis, in different categories, and I was able to then write. And, in, you know, here I'm, I am I just look at a chapter, The Summer of AFI's Discontent, which it just happened to open to. And then I would have these articles and notes and stuff, and I would just find it so fluid to write. And, and then you're always worried you're going to forget something, and I have subcategories and this whole thing on the left. And I... It gave me command of the material. It was like my father shooting all of this film, or as a, I came to end up shooting a lot of film too, and then going into the editing room uh, and being able to make the film. And over and over and over again, writing is rewriting, as I'm sure many of your authors have said. And f- filmmaking is recutting until you get it just right. So, I am a big fan, and I don't know how I would have written this book without Scrivener.
0: That's a really interesting metaphor, talking about film and editing, because one of the things about Scrivener is you can approach each document in the binder as if it's a day's rushes or something. And you can keep what you want and move things around, and you can reorder the whole structure of your book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've got the... I'm looking at their chapters, there's sections in the book. And, and what I have here on Scribner, is just pretty much the way it ended up. Family, war, movies, the New Frontier, the American Film Institute. It gave me a system.
0: So I just want to go back to talking about restoring films, because there's a really interesting paragraph in the last chapter of your book. I'm going to read it. On a rainy night in November of 2018, I drove from my house in Georgetown to the AFI Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, where four recently discovered silent films starring Alice Howell were being shown in a series of silent comedies that included Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd. What made this extraordinary was that I had never seen my grandmother on a movie screen. She was retired when I knew her, and most of the hundred films she starred in were lost, leaving me to see only a few on grainy video. That's such a moving idea. We were talking about D-Day before. It's the same thing. Your your grandmother made a hundred films and they all disappeared. And yet one of them was restored. And in fact, from the still photo in the book, it looks like it was restored extremely well. That photo is looks like it was shot today almost.
1: Yeah. And with the organ, you know, with music, the way silent films had orchestras Organs and to see my grandmother on the big screen uh, was uh, so moving.
0: Did did you take family films with a Super 8 camera? I guess that would be your work infringing on your family because everyone uses a smartphone now to film their family, right? So I grew up in an age where my parents took very few photos. Any kid growing up now is going to reach adulthood with a million photos and videos. Did you document your family?
1: Um, yes, uh, with eight millimeter. Film gone down a notch from 16 millimeter that my father, my father took home movies of us. Uh, yesterday, a film uh, I made about my father was on Turner Classic Movies. I mean, kind of this is my life. Uh, We had this Sunday night thing with Shane, which was so thrilling with Christopher Nolan talking about it with such insight. And then I got an email yesterday from Todd Purdom, a journalist in Los Angeles, and he says, check Turner Classic Movies. And I turned on the guide. And so yesterday, while I was up in my office working, running on Turner Classic Movies silently, were the more the merrier film my father made with Joe McRae and Gene Arthur, nominated for the Academy Award. Um, I Remember Mama, the first movie he made when he came back from the war. My film, George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, which is a two-hour film I made about my father, which is very highly regarded, I can say, um, and, and enough to be on Turner Classic Movies. And then A Place in the Sun, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Montgomery Clift. Shelley Winters, my father's first Oscar. And here it is, just running while I'm doing my other stuff Four movies.
0: But do we have too many films now? Uh, you, You know, I grew up in the era of three networks in New York City, and now we have streaming and video on demand. Is there too much? Well, I I, I I probably would
1: try not to use that exact phrase, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean there there are just more movies than than it, they don't rise up as clearly. Uh, also, with the confusion about how many people are going to go to movie theaters, yeah. But what, it it is extraordinary that golden age of Hollywood and the era just after it that those movies just stand and you wonder how many of the films that you see nominated for the Academy Award, how many are going to stand the test of time? You know, the
0: one that I really did, I don't really pay that much attention because I'm not in the industry, but I do notice which one. The one that really annoyed me was that movie Argo, which I didn't think was a good film, but it seemed to me that this is a film about filmmaking, so it's definitely going to win the Oscar.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just this whole idea of when my father, I went to the Oscars with him in 1952, sat next to him, read the the nominees were read for Best Director, John Huston for The African Queen, William Wyler for Detective Story, Vincent Benelli an American in Paris, Kazan, a streetcar named Desire, George Stevens, A Place in the Sun. Riding home that night, he said to me, we'll have a better idea what kind of a picture this is in about 25 years.
0: it's a good point because films do have a life like that. And and some books do as well. Yeah, Um, sure. They 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 grow as people respect them. Maybe they're not appreciated initially and then they're appreciated later. They can have a second life.
1: Yeah, right. And, And Christopher Nolan and I talked about the test of time and how that is measure.
0: And that was a heck of a selection, 1952. Wasn't it? That was a good year. Yeah. Okay. I usually ask my guests to recommend a, a book that they've read recently for our listeners, but I want to ask you to recommend a film that you've seen recently that you really like for our listeners to go see.
1: Well, I think Oppenheimer is really deserving of people's attention. It's, a, it's about a serious subject, brilliantly done. And I'm just trying to think we talk about the test of time just the other day i had on my big screen uh lawrence of arabia it's one of the best movies ever made directed by david lean with wonderful cast peter o'toole is lawrence Alec guinness anthony quinn but it's just a great movie and just take it take an afternoon take an evening and find it on your streaming service i promise you uh, a good experience
0: Okay, George Stephen, your memoir is called My Place in the Sun. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: I really enjoyed it.
0: If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to scrivenerapp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.